Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. This podcast is brought to you by Tethered. One of the challenges for me in all my gear and what I take with me is always trying to stay public land legal. And what I mean by this is a lot of times when you're hanging gear, you know, the only way or the most common way is to use some type of screw-in mechanism. In the past, I started making... Um, you know, tethers out of, out of paracord that I could hang stuff on in the tree. That way I wasn't having to screw anything into the tree and so forth, but tethered up their game as they always do and thought of the public land mobile hunter and their needs. And they've come out with the hiss strap, which I recently started using, which is a seven foot long piece of webbing that is daisy chained. And you, and it also pairs nicely with their hiss pro pack, which is a combination of some S beaners as well as a pro clip. And so I hang everything from my bow to my backpack to uh, binos to rangefinder, whatever the case is that I'm bringing into the tree with me. I use this hiss strap for that and those various carabiners and S hooks. So if you want to learn more about either the hiss strap or the hiss pro pack, or do you want to learn about their saddle and predator platform setup, head to tetherednation.com and check them out. First thing I do in the morning before a hunt is, of course, I have to have my morning coffee. And I'm sure most of you out there probably feel the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and, of course, donates 10% of their profits to conservation organizations who are helping us to secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip. Exodus Trail Cameras, you know them, you love them, you know that I love them. And they're doing something really cool this holiday season. Uh, as you know, December it means it's time to give back. And our friends at Exodus have joined the holiday spirit and the giving season by creating a limited laser engraved 2% for conservation lift to camera. On top of them donating 1% of their revenue and 1% of their time to nonprofits, they'll be increasing their donations for this limited edition camera and will donate 10% gross of the gross sales of this uh, particular camera. My favorite part of this campaign, though, is that they will have a drop-down menu on the camera listing over on their website, exodusoutdoorgear.com, and you'll be able to select the nonprofit they'll donate 
in honor of your camera. Some of the available nonprofits include the TRCP, QDMA, the NWTF, and the Pope and Young Club. Simply head to their website on December 13th at 9 a.m., find the limited edition camera under the camera tab, select the nonprofit, and you'll receive your Exodus Lift 2 backed by their five-year no BS warranty. There's an extremely limited quantity of these available, uh, on their website, so be sure to check it out if you're interested. If you're not specifically looking for uh, a camera to purchase at this time, that's not a problem. Uh, I did get word from my buddies over there that they'll be giving one of these away, and the details for that can be found in their podcast, Trail Camera Radio, under the episode that they did with Jared Frazier from 2% for Conservation. So check out exodusoutdoorgear.com and check out their podcast if you want to get in the running to win a free camera. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 156. Today, we are diving into part two of a DIY report mini-series and covering hunting active scrapes with John Eberhardt. So stay tuned. All right, all right. Happy Wednesday to all of you out there. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. Hope you're all feeling well, doing fine. Hope you had a chance to get out into the timber a little bit and maybe chase a few whitetails around, or if you've just been grinding real hard, maybe you got a chance to take a little R&R. I know for me, you know, these two weeks that uh, after Thanksgiving, when gun season comes into Pennsylvania, I oftentimes just kind of, I just kind of lay low and take those two weeks and kind of recuperate and, and, and don't really do much, uh, don't really do much hunting. Uh, but this year is a little different last year on the, or last week, uh, well not last week, I guess, but, uh, on the opener, the opening Saturday, I went out and I talked about that, I think in the last, uh, up front of the last podcast. Um, and then this past weekend I ended up headed back out. I usually stay away from most of the, most of the state land or most of the game lands, um, during gun season and usually just try to find a way to, you know, fill a doe tag, maybe go to some small parcels where you can't really gun hunt. Cause it's, you know, it's, it's too small. I've mentioned in the past that I'm a member at a, of the conservancy, uh, group around here. And so I have some small parcels that I have access to that are, that are public in nature where anyone can kind of walk on, but you have to have permission to, to bow hunt them. Um, and that's the one area is the swamp that I've kind of referred to in the past, uh, over the past two seasons. And, you know, I chronicled this throughout the beginning of the year, but this year, at the beginning of the year, I had zero bucks in there. And I would even go as far as to say I had very little doe activity in the in the swamp as well this past year. And so I think the last time I was in there was right before I left for Iowa, where I went and moved a camera because I wasn't getting I just my cameras were dead in there. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to move a camera and, this, you know, be gone to Iowa and I probably won't get back to check these until sometime in December. And that's exactly what happened. So this past weekend, you know, I decided to go out, you know, here during rifle season and take my take my bow out and head back into the swamp and just maybe see if I could feel fill a fill a doe tag and also want to check the camera to see even during the rut, because last year the rut was dead. So I was like, maybe the inverse happens this year. Maybe um, there was some standing corn that I thought might have been the culprit too, that hadn't been, hadn't been picked uh, as we got into late October. And I thought, well, maybe once that comes down, the deer will kind of move back into the area and maybe I'll start seeing some more bucks and start to get a sense of like the crop rotation in this area, you know, for future hunts or for future years to understand, well, when there's corn, it's going to be pretty dead until it comes off or whatever the case was, just trying to put some puzzle pieces together. And so I walked in there uh, this past weekend on Saturday to hunt, and uh, 
<clears throat> pulled that camera and I literally had one rack buck. Um, it was a nine point that was on camera and he happened to cruise through there, I think on like the 16th of November. Um, only rack buck that I've had on camera and he wasn't, he's a younger deer. I would put him at probably two and a half and he's got decent potential. If he, if he makes it to next year, I think he'd probably be a really good deer, but he, he's clearly just coming through there, uh, during the rut. So it's not as though you could really hunt him, you know, in October or whatever you're just in. And I'm again, like I've mentioned in the past, I'm never around during the rut cause I'm usually somewhere else. And next year will be no different where I'll be, uh, in Ohio as, as long as all the plans kind of come together the way I'm the way I'm thinking that they will. So was a little disappointed by that. Uh, cause if you remember last year, I had probably, f- there were three deer in there that were all one thirty or better at the beginning of the year, uh, that kind of hung around all through October. And then I had a couple other shooters that showed up during the course of the rut last year that I had on camera. And so I was really thinking this year was going to be a great year on that little, uh, on that little piece. Uh, but you know, fate would not, uh, have it to be, uh, to be the way I kind of anticipated it. So yesterday at any rate, you know, I was in there, there were a couple of does on camera, climbed up into a tree and the spot, the one area that I've, I've hunted in the past, like I've jumped around to a couple of different spots in here, but there's one tree that I absolutely hate hunting, but it's probably like the killing tree. Uh, it's actually the one that I killed out of last year. And it's like a shag bark tree and it's so damn loud getting in and out that I try to find a better, a different tree almost every time I go in that I want to hunt that particular spot. And yesterday the wind was, was such that, that, that was the area that I needed to be hunting in if I was going to hunt the swamp. So I went to that general area and there's one other tree that I hunted earlier in the year in that general area, but it's, it, it, it leans pretty good. Um, and so, you know, if I'm not sitting all day, uh, even if a tree is kind of leaning and looks as though it's going to be probably a little bit uncomfortable, um, you know, I'll, I'll make the, I'll make the play on it anyway, knowing that I'm going to hunt, you know, yesterday, I think I slipped in there right around, right around lunchtime, right around noon. And so, you know, shooting lights over four forty-five, probably, I'm, I'm probably not able to see my pins anymore at that point. So I was like, you know, it's the four to five hour hunt, which, you know, I can tolerate being somewhat uncomfortable for, for that long in a tree that's not positioned well. And, uh, so I decided to climb into that tree and it's just, you know, when you climb, if you saddle hunt and you're climbing a tree that's leaning, like you typically, you want to be on the side of the tree where the tree is leaning away from you. And John Eberhart talks about, you know, a percentage of uh degree of lean that is kind of acceptable. And I forget exactly what it is, but it's like, you don't want a ton, right? Like you want a little bit cause too much of it's going to make it uncomfortable. You definitely don't want the tree leaning toward you. Um, that can be a little bit more of an uncomfortable and stressful hunt. Um, but the way I was going up it, like the way it was a small tree too. And so I'm using that five-step climbingator, which you're trying to dig your feet into the tree as you're climbing up to give yourself some stability. And whenever you have a leaning tree, if it's leaning too far or it's too small, you don't have any surface area for your feet to get into the, to the tree. Cause your aider is kind of hanging off the side of the tree. So this tree is kind of small. So I had to climb the side that was, you know, leaning, you know, I had to climb the side of the tree that was leaning. And you, you know, you don't want to climb the tree as to where it's leaning back into you. So I was climbing the side that was leaning away from me to make it easier, which meant whenever I got up to climbing height, I would have to hang my platform on one side of the tree or the other. And that meant it was going to be slightly tilted to my left or my right, depending on what side of the tree it was going to be on. And I needed to be on the right side of the tree. So my platform was going to be cammed over, you know, and level, but it was going to have all the bite of it on the right side of the, on the, on the right side of the standoff and not really much at all on the left side of the standoff. 
So I was like, whatever, you know, I was anticipating the deer coming from my left and that's where they've always kind of come from is either, you know, completely to my left and in kind of in front of me or from behind, even if they came from behind me, that was fine as long as they didn't come to my right, because trying to flip to that side, the way the tree was leaning was going to be nearly impossible to make that kind of move for me just from the degree that the tree was tree was leaning like this tree you would never be able to get a stand into um i wouldn't even wouldn't even try it um but i thought you know as long as everything comes from my left which is where they should come from i should be in good shape well i'm sitting there hunting and wouldn't you know it a couple deer got bumped you know i'm assuming they got bumped because they kind of started they came through moving with a purpose and they came from behind me and to my right which i've never had deer come from that direction the past, you know, year and a half that I've been hunting the swamp in this particular area. And, uh, you know, and of course at that moment, the wind switched on me just a little bit, uh, for probably like 20 minutes. And it just happened to be the time that those deer came through. So they hit a certain spot and they stopped cause they, they were able to wind. I guess they caught just a little bit of me. It wasn't enough to really blow them out. Cause they just kind of stopped and they turned around and started milling, you know, I guess what would be to my, uh, West, but one, you know, one doe kind of hung around for a little while and wasn't within shooting distance. And she actually, you know, came, you know, she started kind of walking, you know, from West to East, which was, I thought she might give me a shot opportunity if she was coming that way, but she just never got close enough and never got out of the brush. Um, and so they all kind of moved off and I was like, you know, man, I was like, you know, I wish they'd just come to the other side of me. And then a little while later, it was probably like right around three thirty, three forty-five, something like that. I heard something crack behind me, turn around. And again, I'm just kind of in this spot doe hunting, you know, there, it, there might be a buck that comes by, but I was just looking to put some meat in the freezer and all my truck hammer data and stuff, you know, this past, you know, since July has told me that this isn't going to be a spot probably that I'm going to have an encounter with, uh, with a decent buck this year. And, uh, another one comes from the same stinking spot behind me. And so this time I had a little bit of time and I had a small window at like 24 yards and it was just, I was, you know, this is lessons learned, right? Like you been, you know, using a saddle for, you know, going on two years now. And, you know, the lesson being is that I need to be mindful of kind of more mindful of how I'm setting up my platform because I was, I was positioned in such a way that my, platform was leaning just a little bit. I, I I set it up to where it had a little bit of lean in it because I wanted more of the teeth to be biting into the tree on the standoff. And when I did that, it kind of made it to the point to it was not stable whenever I was in the tree, whenever I had to kind of pivot to get my, um, my, my, my weak side shot. Cause where she was at, I was able to pivot and kind of turn all the way around to where I could still shoot from my strong side. But the way I had my platform set up is I just wasn't getting enough bite and enough stability out of it and wasn't able to take the shots. I had to watch her just kind of walk away. Now, reality is, is that I kind of set up purposefully like that, not anticipating having to take that shot. But, um, you know, I guess bad on bad on me, you know, for blowing an opportunity, not being mindful of what tree I was getting in. If I will, if I literally would have got into the shag bark tree that I hate. I would have had a, I would have had a doe down yesterday, but because I picked a, a less ideal tree, um, and kind of was winging it to a degree, um, blue, blew an opportunity, but you know, uh, nothing risk, nothing gained, I guess, you know, if the, if the deer would have came from where I was anticipating them coming from, I would have had a really great shot opportunity, but you know, that's what they call it hunting and not, not finding or not killing because it's not a, it's not a guarantee. Uh, but with that, you know, speaking of, of hunting, 
and Killen. Uh, we have our part number two of the DIY Report miniseries here with John Eberhardt, who does plenty of hunting and plenty of killing. Um, today's a really cool show. Um, th- this tactic or this approach that we're going to talk about, again, it's one of those things that maybe would have been better served to tee up in, you know, say October, but John and I's uh, schedules just didn't jive to where we were able to get on, get on here and get this recorded until, you know, until after I got back from Iowa. So what we're talking about today is hunting over active scrapes. And this is one of the things, you know, in, that is in his book, I believe it's Precision Whitetails that I read, that he covers this in depth, uh, this topic in depth. And, I've, and it's one of those things where this particular approach, along with mobile hunting, you know, as I've talked about before, it's like, you know, I kind of try to take stuff from guys that I've met along the way and take a little pieces from everybody and, and you know, things that suit me. And not necessarily, quote unquote, create my own hunting style, but like create a system or an approach that works for me that I'm comfortable with and that I feel confident in. Um, and so this is definitely one of the things that I've taken from uh, from John is hunting over, over active scrapes and not just, you know, you know, yes, if they're active scrapes and hunting over active signs seems kind of like a duh moment. But there are specific things for active scrapes that you want to look for that that will suggest or tell you that it is a prime location to be, to be hunting. You know, I always like to say that all scrapes are not created equal. It's dependent on the time of year that you're finding them. It's dependent on where exactly you're finding them. What kind of side cover do you have? How many are there in a, in a small kind of location in an area? And then for me, this is kind of where the marriage of like multiple styles, like maybe Dan, John, and my buddy, Greg Litzinger, everything kind of comes together for me, which is like, if I find a primary scrape area, an active primary scrape area, cause there's different types. There's active scrape areas, there's primary scrape areas. And then for me, it's like the Holy grail is a primary scrape area with side cover in a few rubs around it, um, which is what I was running into while I was in, uh, while I was in Iowa. And so today what we really talk about is hunting over these active scrape areas and how John kind of, you know, uh, will set up in these scenarios, what he's looking for in an active scrape area, how he defines it, and then specifically how he will hunt those, uh, specific locations. So super cool show today. I hope you guys dig it. And as always, thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. You're listening to part number two of the DIY Report miniseries with one Mr. John Eberhardt. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. Good. How's good. Clint? Uh, Clint is doing doing pretty good. He'd be a whole lot better if we could do some Sunday hunting in, in Pennsylvania. We're recording this on a Sunday, which I love spending time with you, don't get me wrong, but if uh, if I could, I'd be in the timber right now. I wouldn't blame you a bit. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, today's topic, what we're going to talk about, if you haven't listened to part number one, you should go back and listen to that. John and I talk a lot about entry and exit strategies also, as, as well as picking out the, the right trees. And we start to touch on freelance hunting just a little bit. Freelance hunting will actually be the part number three that we'll dive into after after this one. But today, what we're going to be talking about is hunting active scrape areas. Now, this is something that I think, you know, a lot of hunters kind of know that, you know, an active scrape is a good is a good place to be. Uh, but one thing I learned from you, John, and just, you know, reading your book and talking to you and that I've started to apply is kind of deciphering, you know, what an active scrape area is worth prioritizing, you know, and I know there's different types of scrape areas and this kind of falls in line with your idea of, you know, hunting destination locations. So <clears throat> I want to start off by saying, you know, it, that scrapes in general are only one of the de- destination locations that you use. You talk about a bunch of them and you, you, that, how you use them in your hunting strategy overall. But, you know, 
I, I know, you know, I think if I'm not mistaken, you know, reading between the lines and your, your books and so forth that, you know, historically your scrape locations as destination locations have been, have been really successful. And it's one of those locations that bow hunters are probably most unclear of how to take advantage of them. So if you could just talk to me a little bit about one, like how you approach an active scrape area and how you might go about hunting it and what it is that you look for in a scrape area that says, Hey, this is going to be a destination location. Okay. Um, Scrape areas are probably my, not probably, they are definitely my number one go-to location that I look for when I'm doing my postseason scouting or whatever. Even if I'm, uh, you know, DIY hunting on a freelance hunt, I, I'm always looking for scrape areas. If I find an active scrape area, that's as good as it gets as long as it's in the right type of location for daytime activity. And that's where a lot of hunters yeah. make huge mistakes they'll hunt a scrape area that's on the edge of a short crop field. And if they're in a heavily pressured state, you know, up in the Northeast, like you're in PA, Michigan, New York, Virginia's, um, you know, the odds of a mature buck, if you're after mature bucks, three and a half years or older, um, the odds of one of those bucks working in active scrape area where the whole one side of the scrape area is exposed to an open crop field is pretty close to zero. And to give you an idea of, how in tune I am and how much I focus on scrape areas, active scrape areas of my 31 bucks that I have in the record book in Michigan, 18 of them were shot at scrape areas. And of my 19 uh, book bucks that I have from out of state, 11 of them were shot at scrape areas. So 19 of my 50 book bucks were shot or not 19, 29 of my 50 book bucks were shot at scrape areas. So um, a scrape area is basically, let's describe what a scrape area is, because a lot of people call scrapes rubs and rubs scrapes. Right. Um, a scrape area is basically a small area where a deer, a buck, will paw the ground and um, basically take all the grass and everything. So it's just a big circle, circular area of bare dirt. And there is typically, probably 90 plus percent of the time, there's a licking branch over it. There's some sort of a licking branch that'll be any place from, you know, six to seven, eight feet off the ground where deer will actually work it with his preorbital, not preorbital, but, but with his saliva. Mm-hmm. And they also have a little hand between their antlers. And so they leave their, their scent on there. And does will do that as well. Does won't work the scrape, but does will come in and they may urinate in the scrape when they get close to their estrus cycle and leave their saliva on the branch and you because i'm sure a lot of hunters have been hunting a long time and seen deer standing there someplace on the edge of usually they're on edges or in openings uh with their head up in the branches and typically that's what they're doing is they're working some form of a licking branch mm-hmm. um, now scrape areas are almost 100 percent of the time made where there is doe activity concentrated doe activity and that's why you typically don't see a lot of scrapes in big timber areas or big stands of public land because in big timber areas, which typically that's what public land is, is brush and swamp and timber, uh, deer tend to wander and browse. So they don't have any very, they don't have those defined feeding locations. So, and when you're hunting in ag areas, you might, you might on big timber areas in a stand of oaks where there's not a lot of other oaks, there's just a very, right. 
consolidated patch of oaks, you might find some scrapes there because that's where does are going to be coming and feeding. So because the does are there, that's where the mature bucks and even the subordinate bucks will work them eventually later in the season will will make their scrapes because there's a doe activity and the bucks are kind of laying their dominance. Uh, you know, that's their calling card is the scrapes and the licking branches. But in ag areas, scrape areas are relatively common. And a primary scrape area is typically where there's going to be one huge scrape or multiple scrapes in a small zone. You know, it may be a 10-yard opening or, uh, you know, along the edge, but sometimes along the edge of a weed field or along the edge of a crop field, you'll find scrapes underneath the trees, you know, single scrapes, you know, along the edges, maybe every 30, 40 yards along the edge. Mm-hmm. Um, but a primary scrape area is where there's multiple scrapes in a small zone. And then it's almost always at a place where there's a lot of doe activity. And that's why those scrapes are there. Interesting. So, let me I guess one thing that kind of popped into in, into mind. You had mentioned, you know, that big woods. It's it, you know concentrated doe doe movement or whatever is where you know you'll find a lot of scrapes pop up. Um, so is it safe to assume that if you're hunting, let's say in a in a big wood setting, you know, and you do find a scrape or something that's off in like in cover, would you kind of say that that's a hot spot? And would you require there to be more than like a singular scrape there? Or are you still looking for that primary scrape area even when it's in cover? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. No, if I'm in a big wood, big timber area, and I hunted big timber for the first, well, not for the first, but for the middle 20 years of my hunting career, I've been boning for 53 seasons. Mm-hmm. And I'd say from 1972 through probably the mid mid to late eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, I hunted big timber exclusively. So if I, if I found a singular scrape in a big timber area, that's usually about as much as you're going to get. You don't typically find scrape areas where there's multiple scrapes in a small zone. Mm-hmm. So if I find a singular scrape is it was typically at a stand of Oaks where there was doe activity. And yeah, there's no question that I would hunt a singular scrape. Now, a lot of times in big timber areas, you might find a scrape line. Mm-hmm. So if there's a three and a half year old or older buck, you know, it's been through a couple of breeding seasons. It's not really uncommon for a buck, especially on his transition route, his routine transition route, when he gets close to the rut phases for him to make scrapes every 30 or 40 yards down down that runway and and a lot of those scrapes i i don't even i didn't even have licking branches over them they were just like frustration scrapes almost so scrape activity gets more common the closer it gets to the rut like right now this well when i say right now i don't know when this is going to air but But yeah uh, we're recording this like the third week of october is when we're doing this right yeah so right now the scrape activity is really stepping up and uh, seeing a lot of scrape activity during the last week, and it's pre-rut, um, so most of the does are not, you know, they're not coming into estrus for another week or week and a half. 
but the testosterone levels in the bucks are coming up. So, you know, they're out there looking for those early estrus does and these, uh, these scrapes, runway scrapes or primary scrape areas or just scrapes in general, uh, because they're made where there's typically doe activity. Uh, that's, that's going to be their routine for looking for those early estrus does. Um, and that, this is my favorite time to hunt for the next 10 days is going to be my favorite time in Michigan to, to hunt because, uh, the bigger bucks, we have very few mature bucks in Michigan, just like you do in, in Pennsylvania. Right. So once the peak rut is here and the majority of does are coming into estrus, our buck to our mature buck to doe ratios are so skewed towards the does that the bigger bucks are typically always doed up. Right. You know, once once the actual majority of does start coming into estrus, uh, the bucks, the older bucks are always with does, so they don't do a lot of cruising. Mm-hmm. They're not cruising looking for estrus does because it, you know, once they breed a doe through her cycle, it doesn't take them very long to cut the track of another estrus doe because there's so many in estrus, and if the, that doe's with a smaller buck, he just kicks that buck out of the way and corrals her back into some security cover and breeds her during her cycle. Right. So pre-rut time when there's not a lot of does in the estrus and they are actually cruising on a routine pattern. And that definitely includes checking their scrape areas. Right. Now, do you... It's because that scrapes are where there was doe activity. Right, right. Now, do you... <clears throat> this time of year, when you start to see scrapes opening up, like the very beginning of them opening up, right? Because I had a scrape area, a primary scrape <laughs> area. There was one large one. And there was probably five other ones within, you know... Some of them were right next to the large one. You know, it was uh, basically it was an oak flat or an oak uh, grove that had been planted on this piece of public probably 15 years ago that was right next to a bunch of stuff that had been clear cut or select cut probably five years ago. Right. So everything was it was a deer's world. Nothing was much higher than maybe six feet tall. There was a handful of trees to get into this little opening that had like a bunch of oak trees that had clearly been planted by the game commission, you know, 15 ish years ago were dropping. And there were, you know, there was one primary scrape, like a big scrape that was in there. And then there was probably, I counted five other scrapes within, you know, a 20 yard area. Cause this little spot was kind of like a little open grove. And I actually had an encounter with a buck there. The first sit, um, an evening sit had a buck pop out at like gray light and had, had no light enough for, for taking a shot. It couldn't see my pin. Um, but it was one of the target bucks that I had seen like on, on, on trail camera. But my question is, is like, do you, when scrapes start to very first open up, do you feel like those are mature deer that are starting to make those scrapes, or do you feel like there are more subordinate deer that are making those scrapes, and the old, and the more mature deer start to make them, you know, later in October? What's your thoughts on that? No, I, no, the very first scrapes that open up, and I've seen scrapes like at apple trees, mm-hmm. uh, as early as mid mid August. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, right. I mean, that's really early, right. and they are always. When you see scrapes in mid-August through September, 99% of the time, that's by a buck that's been through one breeding season. So it's at least okay. a two-and-a-half-year-old. Right. Um, and then once scrapes are open and active, you know, all the bucks in the area will frequent that scrape and possibly possibly work it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've hunted at primary scrape areas where, I've seen subordinate bucks come in and they were just real hesitant and their ears were laid back and not laid back, but 
they were just real nervous coming in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they knew it was made by a dominant buck and it was obviously being frequently revisited by a dominant buck. And that's why I was hunting there. Uh, but they were very hesitant, but, and they wouldn't work the scrape or work the licking branch, but typically younger bucks will come in and, uh, you know, work the licking branches at least, at least leave their saliva on the, on the licking branches as the does will. But yeah, those early scrapes are opened up by the mature bucks, but then other bucks will definitely use them. And what you said about that buck you had the encounter with, mm-hmm. you know, you obviously had security cover because it was a yeah. five-year-old cutover. Yep. So you obviously had security cover and that's really, really seriously important because if you're just hunting scrapes and they're, in an open, open area, like I think I mentioned on the very, on the first podcast we did, yep. if they're on the edge of a crop field, which scrapes around the edges of crop fields are very common, mm-hmm. but if it's on the edge of a short crop field, like a hay field or a picked corn or beans or something like that, your odds of getting a shot at a big buck in a pressured state are slim they're just not going to come in and work those during daylight hours now if you got if you got scrapes along the edge of a standing cornfield where you got security cover in the corn and security cover in the timber alongside of it then your odds are excellent of that happening or what you did you know where you were where you had a five-year-old cutover i'm sure those saplings were relatively tall so they had great security cover around those scrapes yeah security scrapes are great to hunt but if they're not conducive to daytime activity they're not so let's say let me let me give you an example you're actually let's just rolling into the next the next question that i had this is awesome <laughs> was, oh, okay let's let's example say you've got you've got let's say you're in some timber okay mm-hmm. so we'll we'll get rid of the ag part here you're in some timber and you found a couple old apple trees or here's three white oaks and and they've got a lot of scrape activity underneath them. There's some active scrapes under them. Well, the deer bed, let's say the deer are bedding 300 yards away from these scrapes. You know where the bedding area is. And the only way they have to access to leave that bedding area to get to those scrapes is through open timber with no understudy. Mm-hmm. So in other words, they have a, a mature buck that's three and a half years old or older. Now I'm going to go to three and a half, not two and a half. Mm-hmm. Three and a half years old and older is not going to get up out of that bedding area and walk through that open timber with no understudy and be vulnerable to come over to those scrapes and work them during daylight hours. Because no matter what kind of sign, if it's not conducive to daytime activity, it's worthless. It's a, I don't care if there's a thousand scrapes and five billion rubs. Mm-hmm. If it's not conducive to daytime activity with security cover around it, it's it's worthless to hunt. So the, a big buck's not going to make that movement through that 200 yards of open timber with no understudy to work those scrapes in the daylight in the evening. Right. Or he's not going to work them you know, in the daylight in the morning and then go through that open timber to go bed. He's just not going to do that. Now, if those scrapes are there and there is some security cover, between the bedding area and those scrapes in this, you know, whether it be brush or tall ferns or whatever weeds, you know, he will make that, 
that transition during daylight hours because he's in security cover or edges of security cover where he has quick exit 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 route where mm-hmm. he's going to be gone and not worry about it. But he, they just don't they don't like working scrapes where they're next to big open areas where they feel vulnerable or transitioning through open areas to a scrape area in the evening or vice versa in the morning. Right. And you, you kind of described the, the exact setup that this, that this area has. And I kind of, I scouted this. It was funny because I, I didn't find this property until late this summer. And I just hung a trail camera up on a whim in an area. And it was like, eh, if something shows up, maybe I'll investigate it further. And had two for Pennsylvania, had two good deer show up on camera. One was a nine point, one was an eight point, both were three and a half years old. And I was like, all right, cool. I was like, so I'm, you know, I was like, I may end up hunting this. I don't know exactly where yet. So I ended up went in one day, you know, we'll, on our next section, we'll talk about freelance hunting, but I went in on a freelance hunt, just put my saddle on and threw my, you know, my short sticks on my back. And I was like, I'm basically going to walk. And I, I was looking at the map and I was like, well, all the access is on one side of the property. I was like, I'm going to actually go to the opposite side of the property, the furthest point, And I'm going to start looking there. Because I feel like if I'm a if I'm a mature deer on this property, that's probably where I'm going to want to spend my time because it's going to be the least bothered, right? So I walked mm-hmm. back there and I hit that little oak grove, and as soon as I saw it, I was like, "This has all the potential to have scrapes to be a, a little buck magnet area, right?" It was a real hot day. This was our season opens in yep. mid September, so this was like midish September. So I ended up just backing out and didn't even hunt it that day. And I was like, I'm going to come back here, you know, mid-October and see if there's any scrapes laid down. And if there are, then I'm going to hunt it. So I came back mid-October and sure enough, there was like six scrapes laid down and, you know, got up in a tree, sat. Now he came out. I mean, John, I needed maybe 10 more minutes of daylight was all I needed. And so I hypothesized that he was probably bedded not too far from there. Now, I don't know exactly where I found I ended up going in on a rainy day and found like his trail, like getting to the scrape. And so my next move was actually just set up at the end of that, hoping that I might buy myself 10 more minutes. But I want to ask you, this is a little bit of a question for this, but a little bit of advice for me too. you know, in that scenario or just in general with scrapes, like, do you find like, do you prefer a morning or an evening hunt? Cause this was an evening when I saw him, but do you prefer them to coming back to check them on the way to bed? If you think they're right outside bedding or what's your, what's your play on that? Uh, actually during pre-rut midday, really? <laughs> so not morning or evening. Hmm. Uh, to give you an example, I've shot 20 of the 31 Michigan book bucks I've got, 20 of them were shot between November 1st and November 14th. Mm-hmm. Michigan's gun season opens on the 15th and I don't gun hunt. Right. So in that 14 day period, I've killed 20 of my Michigan, of my 31 Michigan book bucks. Seven of those 20 were shot between the hours of 11 o'clock and 3 p.m. So 35% of the deer, the bucks, were shot during 11 and 3, while less than 10%, and I think I narrowed it down to about 8% of my time on stand during those 14 days over those years was spent on stand from 11 till 3. So in 8% of my hunting time on stand, I shot 35% of my bucks at scrapes during midday. Hmm. So midday is, midday is a big, big deal, especially October 28th through November 5th, 6th, somewhere in there. Right, which this actually goes back and plays well with our previous podcast about access. Because if you have an area that you're trying to get into that you that sucks for morning access, 
but it's better for an evening. It's like there's no reason why, especially during that period of time, during that, you know, pre-rut into into rut that, you know, late October, early November, like you could have a great hunt getting in there at daylight so you can see to get in, right? You're not making a bunch of noise, be able to get into that scrape location set up for that midday for like that 10 to 3 kind of situation. Yeah, you're you're actually better off not going in at daylight because you may spook deer that are up and moving around. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're probably better off getting going in around nine thirty, getting on stand at ten ten thirty ish, and then hunting the rest of the day. Yep. That way, you're 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 minimally your odds of spooking deer during your entry at nine nine thirty is going to be less than it would be at daybreak. Yeah, yeah. Where deer are still up and moving, they'll be typically be bedded by that time. Right. And so, I guess let me let me ask ask this because I had a couple of situations, you know, where I was hunting some scrapes, and this was more in that. Uh, um, I guess, well, it was in the early, early part of early part of November, but you know, it seems like pre-rut, at least in my experience, and I'd love to hear your take on this. Like, I feel like this time of year right now, like the very end of October, like I feel like there's a plethora of active scrapes. I feel like when we get into like that very early November section, like it's, it's a little bit of a wild card because I've had, I've had areas that man, like they were hot. And then, like, in an instant, they dried up. You know what I mean? And then well, yeah. three weeks, totally. like, two weeks later, boom, that scrape's hot again. I feel like this time of year, if you find a primary scrape area, like, it's probably going to be pretty good until you get to that, the breeding cycle portion of the season. Is that is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. That's, a, it, that's beyond a fair assessment. That's absolutely 100% accurate. Because once the mature bucks are working scrapes big time right now, through about the 5th of November because the does aren't in estrus, but the buck's testosterone makes them active. So once the bucks actually are breeding does, once the majority of the does start coming into estrus, the bucks have no reason to work scrapes anymore. They're with those, the bigger bucks are with those all the time. So the scrape activity definitely lightens up during that period of time. The pre-rod is when they, the scrapes, from probably the 20th of October through the 5th of uh, November, I would say, is when scrape activity is going to be at the strongest and most revisited. Right. Now, what's your take on how about, you know, I've, I've experienced this in Ohio where I was hunting a, a an area that I've killed a nice deer in the past, had great activity. I was hunting it probably the first week and a half of, of November. So I was there, I think, from like maybe Halloween or the first through like the 10th or something like that. And then I ended up going back. Uh, I drove back on a whim right after Thanksgiving dinner on a Thursday night, ate dinner and then jumped in my truck or ate, you know, early dinner, I guess, jumped in my truck and drove to Ohio and ended up hunting for two days. Went back to that same spot because I know that it's just a, a hot little area. And when I got there, th- so when I was hunting it in early November, there was a small scrape cause I knew that there's, it's a primary scrape area. And I had good deer coming through there. I had a big deer that was that was actually trying to kill him there. And then when I came back for October, there was like a freaking car hood size scrape that was that was now just like you know twenty yards down this runway from where I had had the previous set of primary scrapes. So, do you feel like is there any? So maybe uh, a two part question, I guess. Do, are there fewer scrapes as you get later into uh, November? I would. I think my feeling is there probably is, but with that being said, do they become more valuable later in November because of like the limited number of does that are, that are cycling, that are still available? Yeah. The the same thing happens 
after the peak rut, mm-hmm. you know, once the majority of the does get bred, then the mature bucks have to actually get up off their butts and go look for does again. And then their scrapes become active again. Now in states like Ohio that has a very late gun season, uh, you know, it's, it's really, really prevalent that those scrapes could be hit during daylight hours. You get into Michigan or PA or Virginia, you know, where our gun seasons are during the peak rut, Mm -hmm. you know, to go in and see active scrapes, uh, let's say in late November, yeah, there may be a big buck working that scrape, but it ain't going to be during, it's not going to be during daylight hours. Right. So, you know, totally dependent on where you're hunting. That's, that's one reason I go to Ohio or Iowa or Kansas when I do go out of state during mm-hmm. Michigan's gun season is because mm-hmm. all of those states have extremely late gun season. So I can go during Michigan's gun season in late November and still, in those states, gun season has not came yet. So right. I'm still hunting deer that are acting normally. Right. You know, you get in a where you've got gun season during the peak rut, all the activity beyond that, you know, is typically nocturnal by, by an older buck. Right, right. So, you know, when I go to Kansas, for instance, there's scrapes all over the place. We set up cameras. We hunt scrapes exclusively. And we hunt our cameras exclusively. I don't even use cameras in Michigan, but out of state I do. Right. And, you know, we visit the cameras every day um, and, you know, pull the cards and see what's on them. We walk right to them. Sometimes we drive right to them because out in those, those low-pressured states, it doesn't seem to bother the mature buck activity. Right. And we hunt the scrapes according to what we see on camera because they, they work them during the daylight. And, and, again, gun season has not happened yet. Right. So it's totally different. Ohio, Iowa, and Kansas are probably the three prominent states that have those really late gun seasons. Right. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, that's good advice. Cause as I'm prepping for my Iowa trip, it's, you know, um, it's first time in, in Iowa, right. And, um, thinking about how I'm going to, not how I'm going to hunt it. Cause I don't want to change up how I hunt too terribly much. Cause I don't want to do, I don't want to get into a, a space of unknown or lack of confidence. Cause I don't believe in a tactic that I'm using or whatever. But with that being said, I feel like I can take more risks out there just because they're not as, not as spooky. So as far as checking cameras and stuff like that and being diligent about those types of things, I feel like I can get away with a little bit more. Uh, Absolutely. And one thing I've noticed, I I actually love post rut hunting more than I do pre rut in Michigan. Pre ruts hands down my favorite time, Mm -hmm. you know, this next, this next 10 days. And then, when I'm going out of state, though, like when I went to Iowa and those, you know, Ohio and and uh, Kansas, I love post rut. I think post rut is better than pre rut hmm. in states where they have a late gun season because now the bucks, the mature bucks are wore out. They've been heavily breeding for two weeks. Right. They've lost a lot of their body weight. They're drained. They're tired, but their testosterone totally takes over their body. You know, and once once the majority of the does are bred, they have to get up and they have to go work scrapes, check their scrape areas again, get make them active, and they actually have to do a, a routine to find those late estrus does. And they're just more worn out. Their eyes are drawn, and they ju- you can just get away with more. They're just not as focused on humans and right. hunters. They're focused on getting bred, getting you know, getting their next. Right. So, uh, 
Are you talking like that time frame that's right around Thanksgiving and after? Is that like if we were to put? I think, yep. I, in my opinion, if you're going to Iowa, you're going to Kansas, you're going to Ohio. I, in my opinion, the best ten days would be November for actually hunting. Mm-hmm. Would probably be November twenty second through the end of the month. Wow. Okay. Because we always go early enough. We set when we go to Kansas, like this year, it'll take us two and a half days of doing nothing but setting locations. We prep locations for two and a half days. We right. do not hunt for the first two and a half days. Right. And then, and like I said, we put cameras at each location. They're all primary scrape areas and we're hunting the same places we have for years. I don't pay to hunt there. I got some free permission in some public lands. So, but the scrape areas are the same every year. They're in the same exact spot. So we just right. go reprep the same trees once in a while. We'll pick out a new spot or something, but, uh, nice. But, yeah, that's that's definitely definitely the best time is I I, I start seeing the bigger bucks. Usually November twenty second, twenty third is when we start seeing the bigger bucks nice. getting up. We see a lot of a lot of subordinate bucks. When when I say subordinate out there, I'm talking about you know 120 to 135 inches. Right, we see a lot of. Um, but we don't see the big ones, the you know mid 140s to 160s until right. after the 22nd because they're always locked down with those right all right well i feel like we've covered uh scrape hunting pretty thoroughly is there anything that we missed that you would want to add uh i just remind people that scrapes are scrapes but just because you find a primary scrape area or you know active scrape activity if it's not in the right type of location and it has some form of perimeter security cover around it and some form of transition security cover to a known bedding area, it probably, if you're in a pressured state, is not worth hunting. Right. You know, if you're out west in midwestern states, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, yeah, it would be. But um, right. in a PA, Virginia, you know, Michigan, it's not. Right. All right. Awesome. Well, I feel like we can move on to our third and final part of freelance hunting. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go ahead and subscribe to the Truth From The Stand YouTube channel. We'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those few things for us. Before we shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, Gumleaf USA Boots, Obsession Bows, Day 6 Gear, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Down Wind. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.